From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. In this final parliamentary week of the year, former Prime Minister Scott Morrison faces a censure motion for his bizarre power grab. After the election, it came to light that Morrison had had himself appointed to five ministries, with all but one minister unaware at the time he had a portfolio partner moving in. The censure motion follows the report into his unprecedented action by former High Court Judge Virginia Bell, which was released last week. This would be the first time a former PM has been censured by the House. In exquisite timing, journalist Nikki Sava's new book, entitled Bulldozed, is published this week. It tells the story of Morrison's fall and the rise of Anthony Albanese. Sava has seen politics from the outside and the inside. She has reported on politics for leading newspapers and is currently a columnist for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. At one time, she was press secretary to former treasurer Peter Costello. Several years ago, Sava wrote a scathing account of the Abbott years and the divisive role of his chief of staff, Peter Credlin. She has been one of Morrison's toughest media critics, and she doesn't miss in this book. Nikki Sava joins us today to talk about the former Prime Minister and the future of the Liberals. Nikki Sava, the Bell Report said the multi-ministry affair was corrosive of democracy. So do you think this warrants a parliamentary censure of uh, Scott Morrison or is this going too far, a stunt as the opposition is claiming? Of course it doesn't go too far. The opposition is trying to make out that this is some trivial, inconsequential matter. But what we have uh, heard from Bell and also from Stephen Donoghue earlier is that this is quite a really big deal. I mean, what he did was corrosive of trust in government and a fundamental undermining of our constitutional requirements. So, no, I don't think it goes too far. And I think the Liberals have a duty and a responsibility to the parliament and to their constituents to vote in favour of it. Now, Virginia Bell had trouble coming to grips with Morrison's thinking and his explanation for his behaviour, or more than one explanation, have been unconvincing. How do you interpret his motives? Good luck with anyone trying to get into Scott Morrison's head, seriously. But from what I've been able to ascertain after talking to so many people, not just in the past six months when I've been writing this book, but over the past three years, is that he's a very secretive character, he's distrustful, he's a control freak, he's a bully, he's stubborn, he doesn't listen to anyone And he was, as Alex Hawke has said on the record, addicted to executive authority. He liked to be in absolute control, taking every decision, but not taking responsibility for every decision. And Alex Hawke, of course, uh, just for our listeners, was one of his closest friends and allies in the ministry. 
Some Liberal members would have liked to see a change of leader late in the last term when the government seemed obviously headed for defeat. How seriously was that push and would it have made any difference anyway if it had succeeded? Well, uh, there, are, there are two versions of this which I recount in the book. Stuart Robert, who was also very close to Morrison, who was also one of his numbers men, thought it would never amount to anything and his view was if you've got the numbers, you use them. Alex Hawke, on the other hand, thought it was real. Um, he believed uh, Morrison was panic-stricken by it and he thought that both left and right were out to get him and although he was uh, worried about Frydenberg, he was more worried about Dutton. He thought that there would be a move initiated by Frydenberg and then Dutton would come through the middle. Now, in reality, both Dutton and Frydenberg say they were never going to make the move for a number of reasons. One, um, they weren't sure that they had the numbers, that's true, but also because they believed that if uh, Morrison was removed, he would never go quietly and he would bring the whole show down. Which is probably pretty right. I think that's pretty right because of all the things that we know about him and how vindictive he can be. So I think the consequences of any move against him would have been dire. And, um, you know, the the only way they think it might have happened um, easily is if Stuart Robert and another friend of Morrison's, Ben Morton, went to him and said to him, for the good of the party, you should stand aside. I'm always interested in how these literary sausages are made. Did you find it easy to get interviews with those who'd worked with Morrison? And indeed, did you approach Morrison himself? Uh, I didn't approach uh, Morrison directly. You'd be surprised to hear we haven't spoken for a while, Michelle. I did uh, approach him through his former press sec, Andrew Carswell, twice, and twice uh, they came back and said, thanks but no thanks. As for the others, uh, it, it is a very curious kind of process. I mean, there's a book in that, if you like, about um, why people talk and how you can get them to talk. Some people are very keen to tell their story, to give their version of events and also to set history straight. Um, other people are a bit more circumspect. Sometimes they need a bit of encouragement here and there. Um, there are all sorts of techniques, Michelle, as you're very well aware of after all these years that um, journalists employ uh, to try to get people um, to speak. But I have to say um, on on this occasion it wasn't hugely difficult to get people um, to speak out and I did speak to dozens and dozens and dozens of them and I'm deeply grateful to all of them. Now, after the loss, did Morrison retain any serious defenders or had all those who'd worked with him really become critics, either publicly or privately? A couple of them were still sympathetic towards him. Michael McCormack was one. Um, 
and uh, Ben Morton was another. Michael McCormack, of course, former Nationals leader who was knocked off by Barnaby Joyce in the latter days of the government. Yes, and no thanks to uh, Morrison. And in fact, one of the reasons why he lost his leadership was because the Nats thought he didn't stand up to Morrison enough. So, you know, I think there's a lesson in there somewhere. Well, Michael McCormack sounds a forgiving man. Maybe too much so. (laughs) And others too defended him? Ben Morton defended him to a certain extent. Even on the uh, multiple ministries, uh, Morton said that, you know, the rest of the world is looking at what a wonderful job Australia did in getting through COVID and here we are fixated on this trivial matter. But they were really about the only two who were out there defending him. Ben Morton was also interesting in the sense that he held a seat in Western Australia and he was warned during the campaign that he needed to get back home to save his seat. Instead, he travelled with Morrison during the entirety of the campaign because he was probably the only person who could keep him calm. And he also, according to what I was told, acted as a kind of a shock absorber when Morrison had, you know, one of his little meltdowns. People felt better if uh, Morton was there so that he could absorb it a bit and they wouldn't cop it as much. Well, admirable loyalty, but in the end it uh, didn't serve him very well in terms of his own career. Can we now turn to the Liberals more widely, Nikki? In the days you worked in government, John Howard was Prime Minister. How did the Liberal Party change from then to now? What's the difference now in the party? I think a lot of it has to do with leadership. A lot of it has to do with the quality of the people who are actually in Parliament now and also with the quality of the staff. Howard himself was a very experienced politician, as we know, by the time um, he got there. He knew what he wanted to do. He wasn't afraid to tackle reform. You know, he believed if you sat still, if you stood still, you got overtaken, so you had to keep moving, you had to keep doing things. And he also had a very good front bench. I mean, he had... Peter Reith, he had Peter Costello, Michael Waldridge and all these people who were very good in their own areas who could be trusted to do their own job and then they all had very good personal staff as well. Apart from that, Howard had a respect for the Liberal Party and he always called it the broad church. So he always made sure that the right and the left wings of the Liberal Party always felt as if they had a place at the table and that they would be heard. Now, we always hear that the Liberals need better candidates, they need more women, and their problems are, frankly, pretty easy to identify, but there are not easy solutions to these problems. Correct. So what what should they be doing now? Well, look... <laughs> They're in, a, they're in a terrible, terrible state. As we saw in Victoria on Saturday. Which was accentuated by what happened in Victoria where they little or no headway. So they can't just say, oh, well, it was just the federal party, it was just Morrison. No, it goes way beyond that to what has happened to the Liberal Party in the last few years and the way the character and the nature of the party has changed. 
There is no doubt that there are a lot of maddies who have joined up, uh, huge segments of the religious right who have joined up, who have changed the character of the Liberal Party. They don't have so much a progressive voice inside the Liberal Party now, and that's why they've done so badly in those inner seats. And, of course, a lot of the progressives were wiped out by the Teals. They were wiped out by the Teals. Can I say that not that it was their fault that they were, but to an extent it, it was because Morrison owed his prime ministership to the moderates. They're the ones who put him there and then they extracted no price from him for that. They sat there and did very little, including on climate change, And yes, they did um, mobilise a bit at the end, but by then it was too late. So given this situation and given that he's trying to appeal to divided constituencies, outer suburbia, inner suburbs, what should Peter Dutton's game plan be and can he ever win an election? Well, anything is possible in the way that anything is possible, but I don't think it's going to happen if he continues as he's begun. I think he does need to confront, you know, those difficult issues. He needed, I think, to move earlier on the voice rather than allow the Nationals to come out in opposition to it. It would have been much better for him and for the Liberal Party, I think, if he had said from the outset, you know, we are prepared to support this. He should have been tougher on that. I think on climate change also, I think he's been too wary to confront that. He's been too worried about what the conservative wing might think or what the nationals might think when I think he should have been intent on saying what the Liberals think and reshaping the Liberals in those areas. If he had come out on The Voice early, would he have faced, though, a revolt within the coalition? Would the Nationals have fought that? Um, Quite possibly. Doesn't matter? Sometimes you need to have a fight, don't you, when you're in opposition especially. The Nationals have shown they're not afraid to have a fight on an issue that they believe in. Now, I might not believe in what the Nationals um, have agreed to do, but they have taken a stand on an issue that they feel strongly about. And that is what has set the Nationals apart. That is why they have managed to hang on, whereas the Liberals try to have it each and every way and end up nowhere. Now, In the Victorian election, the Teals have fallen short of expectations. Do you think this Teal movement has peaked or do you think community candidates, uh, the whole community candidate movement is still building? I think it has the potential to do even better than it has done before. But that depends on... Federally. Federally. State is a slightly different matter. They didn't have good candidates, I don't think. They didn't have the finances. It was a different dynamic. But federally, I think if the Liberals are still in very bad shape, the Voices movement is already gearing up for the next election. They have their eyes on Bradfield. They have their eyes on Wannan and any number of other seats. The only way that they can stem the rise of these groups is by performing. 
Anthony Albanese is in a luxurious position that he's in government so he can address these things, right, and show that majority government by majority party can work and can achieve things. And so that might help him. But I don't see how the Liberals are going to be helped by continuing to stand for issues that aren't really mainstream. On the seat of Kuyong, which Josh Frydenberg lost at the election, at the state election, uh, the Liberals have won one of the two seats within it and look to be a good prospect to win the second seat. Do you think that uh, Josh Frydenberg should run again or do you think he will run again? I think um, what uh, we saw at the weekend with those uh, two seats would have been heartening uh, for um, for Frydenberg. But I think he would realise there's still a long way to go. And like I say, it's a different matter federally. There is a candidate there, um, the Monique Ryan, who won the seat, who is a very tough cookie. And I think she would be um, very difficult uh, to unseat. So um, I think... Of course, he would love to come back, you know, that's to fulfil his destiny. But I don't think he'll be making a decision right away. I think he'll just wait and see how things develop over the next year or so, maybe. Mind you, he can't wait too long because if he is going to try and come back, he has to run a campaign. He can't just say three months, six months out, oh, I think I'll run. So he's in a bit of a dilemma. Now, integrity has become a big issue in recent times with the public critical of the standards of politicians but also of journalists. You've said in the past that you lied about your sources and you made no apology for that. Are the circumstances in which you think politicians are justified in lying and if there are not, why are journalists different? I was making a point about, I was actually saying there is no excuse for press secretaries to lie, right? And I never lied when I was a press secretary and that I told more lies as a journalist than I ever did in any other capacity. And one of the reasons for that was because of sources. You lie to protect your sources. Now, okay, that's maybe not ideal, but there is a justification for that. There is no justification for a press secretary to lie or a politician to lie. I never lied in print. Everything I wrote, everything I printed was as accurate as I could possibly make it. But in your pursuit of information you might dodge around things a bit, like you might pretend that you know more than you know in order to elicit information. I'm sure you would never employ tactics like that, um, Michelle, but there are ways. We are dealing as journalists with very tough animals here and I think you have to show that you can be as as tough as they are. Otherwise, they just roll over you and you never get anything. You never get anywhere. You never get any decent information. But I don't think there is any excuse except for maybe national security grounds for a politician to lie and certainly not for a press secretary to lie. And Andrew Carswell, uh, who I interviewed for Bulldozed, 
regretted that he had lied to journalists. He was chief press secretary. He was chief press secretary to Morrison and he was asked about Morrison's whereabouts during the bushfires and he told uh, them that it was wrong to say that he was in Hawaii. No, it was very wrong of Mr Carswell to lie about where he actually was. Well, it's always good to see repentance, and I must say I always like the comparison between politicians and uh, the animal world, of which I'm very fond. Now, just finally, I think Gough Whitlam was the first PM that you covered. We know who you'd rate as the worst PM of, of those you reported on, but who was the best? Um, Best. My favourite Prime Minister was Gough. And Why? Well, because, well, I was a young thing, a very young thing at the time, and the country needed to change. And he changed almost everything about Australia in a very short period of time. Now, he may have, may have gone about it in a, in a very chaotic way or might have gone about it too fast, but he brought in lots of changes that the country needed and some of which still endure, like on divorce laws and um, and so on. So I thought that was a very exciting and a very important time. And it was also that that's why he was elected. He was elected to change things. And sure, he went about it maybe in a way that uh, offended some people, but I admired him for that. Mind you, Hawke and Howard also changed things in a very good way and I thought they were very good Prime Ministers too but I guess it's a product of youth and idealism and anyway, it was golf. On that happy note, we'll end. Thank you so much for talking with us today. All good luck with the book. I'm sure that it'll be uh, great for many people for Christmas. Thank Certainly you. Certainly the, uh, the political people. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. That's all for our podcast today. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.